Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And today we are talking about Needful Things. The last Castle Rock story. Did it stay the last Castle Rock story? No. No, of course not. No, I mean, anytime Stephen King would say, oh, this is the last of this, I'm stopping this, oh, I'm retiring, no. Yeah, he's like, uh, I don't know, it was was it Rolling Stones that went out and did like you know one last time? Yeah, I think in concert like, tour in like the early eighties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, so we're talking about Needful Things, which is a film from nineteen ninety three, uh, based off of the book by Stephen King, and uh, this is a pretty good time, not just of the year. Uh, we're doing this in October of 2017 but also uh it's kind of nice to be able to talk about stephen king at this time um because he had somewhat of a uh kind of resurgence this year um which is great for somebody who turned 70 last month man he's 70 yeah wow that's uh that's crazy um yeah he had two huge movies come out um two mixed results i guess you could say um but earlier this year, there was a Dark Tower, uh, which kind of came and went and unfortunately flopped, and I didn't see it. I didn't see it either. Um, mainly because I've been, I've always wanted to read the Dark Tower books, but never have, and I would rather read them before seeing a movie based off of the book. Yeah, I had friends who were like, oh, we're going to go see it opening weekend, and I was like, I read the first book a long time ago and i kind of want to read the other i don't even know like there's like seven or eight other books at this point yeah it's a a tall order for sure yeah and like some of them are pretty long books because stephen king likes to do that yeah he just like can't stop writing which is i mean some people are like oh he's just churning stuff out there's nothing to it but like it's his work ethic is really admirable like he writes for like four hours every day and he does not need to, to like to make a living or anything. He just, but he does need to because he just, it's just in him. He needs to get it out. And yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's like I mean, if only I could tap into that kind of uh, creative drive. <laughs> yeah, if if you had the time. Well, I mean, I'm you know, I mean, once that is the thing. I mean, he's once you're working professionally at that. Yeah, it becomes easier to just devote all of your, you know, time and energy into it. But even like, I mean, in his early years when he was like just like a janitor and he was like working in a laundromat and he was, then he became a teacher. Like all through that time, he was still writing, and then it got to the point where it's like, oh, I don't need to do a second thing anymore. I can just do this. I can just write, and then he kept to that schedule, and like, just. So, like, to get to the point of being successful, like, he put the work in. Like, he was doing his regular eight hours a day job, at least eight hours a day. And then on top of that, he was doing the writing, which, uh, it's like, whenever I complain about, like, oh, I've got all these projects I want to work on, and I, I just don't have the time to do them, it just makes me seem, like, just, like, so lazy. Yeah, thanks a lot, Stephen King, for making this all look <laughs> bad. Um, no, I mean, it, but it's inspiring to be able to see, you know, how much he's been able to accomplish and 
you know, it, it's just it's just by putting it. You got to just put in the work, you know, and uh, and some of it is great. Oh, absolutely. And some of it is very good, and some of it is good. <laughs> and I, I really haven't read much that's like not that great, but I also. I don't think I've read any of his novels since The Green Mile, which I think was like 1996. That might be the most recent one I've read. And he's written a ton of books in the past 20 years. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is. Um, So yeah, Dark Tower came out, and that was highly anticipated because that had been sort of tossed around Hollywood for a very long time, trying to get an adaptation together. Um, And it finally felt like you know okay uh now is the time we have like the technology to be able to do a lot of the things that like you know we can sort of see in the movie and stuff um and i mean i like like we said we haven't seen it so it's hard for us to comment on it but critical reception was not great and uh a lot of people who were fans of the books didn't really care for it Mm -hmm. um because it strayed too far from the source material so um yeah but so so that came out and then just a couple weeks ago what was it three weeks ago i think um from when we're recording this from when we're recording this now yeah uh it was in september sometime uh it came out which is i guess technically a remake um of the 1990 uh made for television miniseries uh it with pennywise the clown and uh we actually went to go see that this past sunday um partly in preparation for this episode because we knew we wanted to talk about stephen king and partly because you know i mean we just wanted to see it (laughs) but um yeah this movie it was a much much bigger success than dark tower Um, not just financially which i mean man it's been set in all of the records and breaking all of the records and making all the money it's crazy but uh but the movie itself was very entertaining a lot of fun and uh you know as somebody who i haven't seen i haven't i hadn't seen the original uh, made for tv version in a long long time i'd only seen like maybe the first half um so i was never really like a big fan of it or pennywise or anything like that but this movie definitely uh i i had a lot of fun i loved it i um i enjoy the uh the miniseries but it's definitely flawed the people who were involved in making it know it's flawed (laughs) and um a lot of the issues that they had with the miniseries uh didn't really come up much in uh, the film um, partially because well I mean it's as opposed to like a made for TV miniseries like this is an R-rated film so people are allowed to like like kids talk a certain way and it can be very disconcerting to hear them talk that way and this movie lets them talk that way oh yeah um and it doesn't hold back with uh, with the violence against the children. Yeah. Um, which was, you gotta say, quite refreshing to see children being put through that kind of hell. It really <laughs> was. Um, 
I do prefer Tim Curry as Pennywise to, um, is it Bill Skarsgård? I think is his name. Yeah. Is it, yeah. I really liked the performance, um, in the new film, um, just like visually, like when he wasn't talking, <laughs> when he was just staring or when he would just abruptly be moving and like it, they, I feel like they use the character uh, better in the movie, but the performance itself, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like people say this a lot. You can't top Tim Curry. So, I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I have to go back and, I, I you know, after seeing the movie, I, I really do want to go back and watch the miniseries again. Because it's been, like, God, since I was a kid, pretty much. And so I don't really remember it all that well. Um, and this, I mean, the movie that the 2017 movie we're talking about it, it kind of is a miniseries again because it's a the the film that's in theaters now is the first half of the story and it's basically like the first half of the miniseries except they don't do so in the book and the miniseries there's a flashback structure and you go back and forth between the characters as children and the characters as adults 27 years later but the way they're doing the films is this first one it's just the kids and has nothing to do with them when they're grown up or anything. And then the next one, which is supposed to come out like in two years, which yeah. is yep. so frustrating. Um, that one's going to be all the adult stuff. And it's, I'm not somebody who really watches a lot of um, uh, like superhero movies or movies about like hobbits or wizards or uh, sadomasochistic millionaires. So I'm not used to waiting for chapters like like all this time between entries in film series. Mm-hmm. So like I just want to watch the film now. Yeah, welcome to to uh, New Hollywood here <sighs> because uh, that's that's what it's built on is is just the franchising the hell out of everything. Um, but I gotta say like you know it's easy to be cynical about that sort of thing i mean when they're taking like something like the hobbit which is a pretty straightforward book and breaking it up into three movies that is you know you're stretching that story out to a point that i mean is not really as successful as it could have been um but it could have made three movies i feel like (laughs) yeah i feel like splitting up it in the way that they have i think makes a lot of sense it does yeah and uh you know, they set it up really well because it's like, you know, setting it in the 80s with the children. Whereas, as far as I know, it, the book is, the modern day adult storyline is in the 80s. And the childhood storyline is in the 50s. Yeah, I think it's 1957 to 1984, I believe. Yeah. So they've updated it in that regard. So it's the children are now in the 80s and like 89. So now when they go to do the adult story, it can just be set in modern day contemporary time and uh i'm sure that you know i would be surprised if there weren't any flashbacks in the in the sequel Hmm. there probably will be some stuff that we kind of see with the kids even if it's like a scene or two where we sort of see a conversation that you know some of the kids had that we don't see in this movie yeah maybe stuff Um, that even they already shot it yeah and they cut it and they're like oh well let's throw this in the uh chapter two yeah i'd be surprised if we didn't see any of the kids in uh part two which would be awesome because these kids were just i mean child actors are hit and miss i love these kids yeah they i mean and and there's a big cast of kids too there's Mm. a lot of them um something like i mean 
I mean, with all of like the not just the main children but the you know the bullies and everything i mean you're talking about like 10 to 15 different actors something like that and uh yeah not really a weak link so uh so yeah stephen king's been having a uh pretty well i don't want to say good year because i mean i guess dark tower was somewhat of a misfire but yeah but i mean I'm sure he'd already cashed his check oh yeah i'm sure he's having a great time <laughs> like he like famously said years ago like an, an interviewer uh asked him like you know what does it feel like to like watch all these like filmmakers just like ruin your books and he just pointed to the shelf behind him and he's like they didn't ruin my books they're all right there yeah so he's got like a pretty like this is fair attitude to yeah all this the isn't his and, first rodeo i mean like yeah. how many of his books have been adapted to films oh god dozens right. and dozens yeah. at this point um sometimes i mean like in the early 80s there would be a case like john carpenter's christine which went into production before the book was published so they ended up coming out they both came out in 1983 <laughs> And it was like a big sort of like, Christine is, is here. Yeah. We've got the book. We've got the movie. And that was, in that same year, Cujo and the Dead Zone came out. Like when it started out, like Stephen King. All right, so you know we the one Stephen King film we've already done is Carrie, way back when. That was like the first movie that we did. Yeah, um, that was the first uh, adaptation of a Stephen King story, and you know, that was Brian De Palma. And, like, starting out, you had all these sort of, like, horror auteurs, like, the, the big names, like, some of them, like, Stanley Kubrick doing The Shining were big names, no matter what genre, but, right. like, um, you know, you had Toby Hooper doing Salem's Lot, you had David Cronenberg doing The Dead Zone, John Carpenter doing Christine. Um, we don't really think of Louis Teague as, like, a big name now, but in the early 80s, there was the movie Alligator, which he was known for, which was, like, a sort of a hit. Uh, he did Cujo and Silver Bullet. And then, like, uh, in, like, the mid-80s, it just started to be... <laughs> there were just, like, you know, a lot of Stephen King movies being made. And, you know, the, the term brand name horror was coined, and people were just like, oh, these trashy Stephen King movies are all the same. And they weren't really being taken seriously. Except for one... I mean, like, Stand By Me came out, and because it wasn't horror... It was like a different thing. It's like, right. oh, he's got this going on. And that was um, directed by Rob Reiner. And um, from the success of Stand By Me, Rob Reiner was able to form the company Castle Rock. Castle uh, Rock Entertainment. Yes, which uh, you know is named after a town um, that many of King's stories take place in. And you know they also did uh, Misery. And they're the ones who ended up producing Needful Things in 1993. So by the time we get to Needful Things, there had already been a whole decade of sort of churning out any and all Stephen King adaptations yeah. that they could get their hands Children on. Children of the Corn had come out, Silver <laughs> Bullet. Uh, there had already been the It miniseries. Um Yeah, there's plenty. This was just after The Lawnmower Man, which was not based on a Stephen King book, but it was 
called Stephen King's The Lawnmower Man because they sold the rights to the short story The Lawnmower Man to, I think it was, I believe it was New Line uh, Cinema, who, oddly enough, are the ones who put out It, um, the new It. But anyway, um, so they came up with this story that had nothing to do with the short story. It's all about, like, virtual reality and, like, this, like, special needs lawnmower guy becoming brilliant and Pierce Brosnan's, like, a mad scientist or something. So it's essentially just a name only. Yeah, yeah, they took the title and they had, uh, there was a guy with a lawnmower. And so, you know, Stephen King was, like, sued them. Like, take my fucking name off this. <laughs> like, and, um... It was, they were very stubborn about it. It was a long time before they eventually did take his name off of it, but it's still listed in his IMDb credits and it's still, it's a stain that just won't come off. Yeah. Um, because that name, you know, the name Stephen King, you can slap it on anything and, uh, yeah, people will be like, oh, well, Stephen King, you know, he bring because, because he's, a, has that literary weight to it, mm. it suddenly elevates anything. To being like, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's a evil car movie. <laughs> but it's Stephen King. <laughs> oh, and then speaking of evil cars, the one time Stephen King tried to make his own movie, he wrote and directed it himself. And he's right. like, all right, you know, if anybody's going to like mess up a Stephen King movie, this time it's going to be Stephen King. And he did. Uh, Maximum Overdrive, based on the short story Trucks from the Night Shift collection. Um... Now, this is one I have not seen it all the way through. I just remember seeing bits and pieces of it on TV as a kid. I don't know anybody who likes it. Have you ever seen it? Nope. But, um, yeah. So, you know, even when Stephen King is doing the adapting himself, it can be tricky. Yeah, so uh, so how many of uh, Stephen King's adaptations have you seen? Or adaptations based on Stephen King's works? Uh, well, going by the IMDb credits, which jumbles together, you know, based on a story by, screenplay by, all that stuff, um, leaving out the music video for Michael Jackson's Ghosts, uh, 29. And that includes, like, TV miniseries, which sometimes are, like, the best representations. That's sometimes the best way to attack these big hulking novels. Yeah, for sure. And um, does that does that also include... Uh like we were talking about before we started recording, like a movie like children of the corn comes out and it spawns like, you know, six sequels or whatever that have nothing to do with. They aren't based on yeah. directly based on those. Well, books. I haven't actually seen any of those sequels. Okay. So I actually haven't even seen the original children of the corn. Oh yeah. It just came out on Blu-ray from arrow video. I might check it out now, but so I, that's one of those ones. It's just, it's got a really bad rap and um, you know, maybe it's great. I don't know. I've, that's one of the ones that I have seen, actually. You like it? And I, I came to it late. It was, you know, growing up, it was one of those things that, like, you know about, and it's like, you know, the crazy kids. Yeah. Um, and kind of like you said, like, it kind of has, like, a bad rap. But watching it more recently, growing up, I enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, it was cool. So, I don't know. It's It's a weird movie. It's not, like, one of my favorites or anything, but... And also, I mean, it was one of those ones that came out in 1984. So it's like right after, you know, all the movies I mentioned that were in 83. And it's the same year as Firestarter. And the next year you've got Stephen King's Cat's Eye, Silver Bullet. Like, at the time, people probably just weren't 
they were done with Stephen King. They were like, oh my god, stop it. Yeah, does every movie have to have Stephen King's name on it? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, so you've seen like 29. That is impressive. Thank you. Because I have only seen 9. If you believe that. I'd like to know which 9. Alright, well, I've seen Carrie. As we've documented uh the shining stanley kubrick's the shining from of course uh creep show does that count it's not based on a book i counted it he wrote the screenplay it's, okay okay so it's based on his writing yes children of the corn pet cemetery needful things shawshank redemption the mist and it 2017 now there are some movies like the original miniseries it from 1990 or misery or the green mile which you feel like you've seen them but you're not sure i've i think i've technically have seen them yeah. i just have no not enough memory to be able to say like oh yeah I, I know that movie i've seen that movie you know what i mean yeah um it's like i know that i've seen the miniseries for the tommy knockers but I don't think I could have an intelligent conversation with anybody about it because it was so long ago. I mean, I counted it in the 29, but it's like, I don't really remember much of that. I just remember certain moments. Yeah. And then there's certain ones like The Stand, which despite being eight hours long, I might have watched that like at least 10 times, which is ridiculous to think that that many hours of my life was spent <laughs> watching this one story over and over. Yeah, hey, I've got stories like that. So, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> not I, eight hours long. But um, I've been rewatching Frasier for years, so that's that's even more, I guess. That's a sad look into life of Tim. <laughs> <laughs> but the Stand is great. The Stand is one of my favorite adaptations, and of the um, the made for TV miniseries, that might be the crowning achievement. There's some unfortunate CGI circa 1994. Um, but I mean, Gary Sinise's performance and that is really great. And that's, that's how I first knew about Gary. That's how a lot of people first knew about Gary Sinise. And then like a couple months later, Forrest Gump came out. And then, uh, Apollo 13. Yeah. Which featured Ed Harris. True. As Ooh. did The Stand. He had a little cameo in The Stand. Who, uh. Yeah, was uh, the the main leading man in uh, Needful Things. Yeah. Which, technically, it's a movie that came out in theaters in 1993. But it also was a TV miniseries? Yeah. um, Not by design. That just sort of happened. Okay, because that was going to be one of my questions. Because, essentially, there's there's a uh, two-hour version of the movie, which was what was shown in theaters. And that's what's on DVD, and that's what's on the recently released Blu-ray. But then there's also this three-hour-long cut of the movie, which is not available in any of those forms. It's not on any of those releases. Yeah. Um, it's an extended cut that was made specifically for television. Yeah, they just they took all these scenes that have been cut, and they just threw it back in, and they put it on the air. And uh, the director, uh, Fraser C. Heston, um, 
he wasn't really fully behind that move. Like, he felt that he had it down to, like, a cut that he liked. Yes, that makes sense. Because in preparation for this episode, we watched uh, the theatrical version. And then uh, Tim provided me with an illicit uh, video file of the extended cut um, (sighs) as taped off television. Am I going to jail? (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't steal a car, would you? I do have a VHS tape somewhere of it being taped off TV. Like, I I cannot find it. So, yeah, I had to uh, resort to The dark links. web. Yeah. <laughs> um. It was called, I remember it was called More Needful Things on TV. Like, it was listed in, like, the TV book in the newspaper. Like Really? Yeah. Huh. And I'd already, like, so... I didn't have, like, Showtime, HBO, Cinemax, or anything growing up, but every now and then they'd do those free weekends, and I would just, like, you know, set the VCR and tape a bunch of stuff. And I first saw the... I first saw Needful Things, like, the theatrical cut of Needful Things. I think it was HBO... It was either HBO or Showtime. And I watched it a lot as a kid. And then I saw on TBS, they were having something called More Needful Things. And I was like, What? there's a sequel <laughs> yeah and um and it was like you know i had commercials so it was like four hours long and so i taped that and i watched it i was like what there's all this what the hell's going on here like it just was so much more more yeah. needful things it's exactly what it called itself <laughs> yeah the, the guy the guy who typed that into the uh tv guide listing is like i don't know how i could have made it more clear <laughs> it's just more of needful thing i don't know why everyone's getting so confused <laughs> I'm applying um, for that job. I wonder if I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, that could be you. Um, but yeah, so I watched uh, the extended cut. Now, I didn't get through the whole thing because, like we're saying, it's three hours long and I just didn't have the time to devote three hours to watching the same movie again. But I did watch the first two hours of it. And uh, I gotta say, I'm with the director here. I think the theatrical cut is stronger overall and is a better edit than the extended cut. There are certain things that I think could have been expanded upon. Like Brian Rusk's mother. Uh, she's a very odd character in the theatrical cut because she appears from time to time without any explanation of who she is yeah and she's just like this weird looking lady with like these big sunglasses on and she's just kind of in the background of certain moments and then in the big climax of the film uh you know our hero alan pangborn played by ed harris like just looks at her (laughs) and is like cora your son is in the hospital because of this man and only at that moment do we realize oh that's brian's mom oh that's okay yeah there's that sort of thing that is uh, odd. And I could tell watching the theatrical cut, even if even if you hadn't told me that there was an extended version, it feels like there's stuff that's cut out of that movie. Yeah. Because there are certain leaps that we sort of jump over. Um, they expand... The, oh, there's a scene where... Um, uh, Polly Chalmers, played by Bonnie Bedelia... Uh, 
Alan Pangborn's fiance like comes into his office, like, a deleted scene where he, she comes into the office while he's on the phone mm-hmm. uh, with somebody like def- defending uh, Danforth Keaton to the like tax investigators or whatever it is. Yeah. And like that, like that's not in the theatrical cut, but in the theatrical cut, they do reference like her hearing him defend Keaton. Yeah. And like that's how it's sort of easy to plant the idea in her head that like Alan is like in on something with him. Yeah, and there's another scene in the extended cut where they're having dinner mm-hmm. and she sort of is asking about his relationship with Danforth Keaton. Yeah. And he kind of brushes it off, which adds to the suspicion because otherwise just in the theatrical cut there's only one scene where we see that she might think that there's something going on between those two characters. Yeah, and she just sees them talking and can't hear anything they're saying. So it just yeah. makes her seem very gullible. Yeah. So there's stuff like that. Um, Let's just call him Buster. It's rolling yeah, off the it's tongue much so easier. much better. But I like the name Danforth. It's, yeah. It's kind of a cool name. Um, I, I like that uh, the character of Nettie, played by Amanda Plummer, doesn't get the reference. Like, she says to Leland Gaw, like, they <laughs> yeah. call him Buster Keaton, and he's like, why? And, and she's like, I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah. Like, that, that was sweet. Um, So, yeah, I guess just to back up here, for anybody who hasn't, who's listening to this who maybe hasn't seen the movie, um, Needful Things is about uh, Castle Rock, Maine, uh, where there's a new antique shop opening up in town. Um, run by the proprietor uh, Leland Gaunt from Akron, Ohio played by Max von Sydow and uh, he is essentially selling all of the townsfolk uh, antiques and they're all of these things that uh, are basically their innermost desires um, and he somehow seems to always have the very thing that people are looking for and when he sells these uh, these things to the townsfolk, he doesn't. He's not exchanging money most of the time. He's exchanging deeds, uh, and he'll ask the townsfolk to go do things for him. And he's essentially playing everybody in the town against each other. So he'll send, uh, you know, the kid Brian to go throw uh, mud and turkey shit <laughs> on uh the the uh the the farmer's wife's uh, linens knowing that she's going to think it's Amanda Plummer's character who did it and so he's crafting this whole uh intricate web of deceit against each other and uh what's interesting is i didn't know anything about this movie going in when we when we watched it and uh as it plays in the theatrical cut it's not made immediately clear that leland gaunt is the literal devil yeah it's played a little bit like to the chest even though if you go and watch the trailers of how this movie was sold they're not making any you know they're not hiding it at all (laughs) and i feel like the trailer was on a lot when the movie first came out, because I, I definitely remember, like, I vividly remember watching that trailer and I knew like going into the movie exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. 
And I think it's interesting because if you go and you watch that trailer, the original theatrical trailer to Needful Things, they're saying straight up that Max Rancido is playing the devil. And it's a much more lighthearted uh, vibe that you get from it. Where there's all yeah. these sort of like witty one-liners about like, oh, I, I tell me if it's too hot in here, I sometimes turn up the heat. You know, <laughs> just all of those things. Any little moment that they could pull from the movie, they just put into this trailer to make it look like it's this kind of like witty, uh, funny comedy thing. I just killed my wife. Was that wrong? These things happen. Yeah, which in the movie is one of the most like, it's really horrific and kind of like, you know, just really scary moment. And it's played for laughs in the trailer. Um, and I thought it was interesting because I, I was just look was looking over the Wikipedia page and uh, there's a little excerpt from Roger Ebert's review at the time. And one of the criticisms he said was like, it's not funny. And I thought it was interesting and weird to me because not knowing anything about the movie and just watching it for what it is, <laughs> I wouldn't leave the movie and be like, well, it wasn't very funny, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think like at the time people going to see it very well could have been expecting something very different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in the theatrical cut, it doesn't really, they're not outright saying initially anyways, that Max von Sydow is the devil in the extended cut. It's made a lot more clear at the beginning. He blows up. Well, he doesn't (laughs) blow up necessarily, but like. He disappears into the flames. Yeah, because in the extended cut, there is literally a 15-minute... There's 15 minutes at the beginning of this movie that is just chopped entirely off of the theatrical version. And in that 15 minutes is a car chase by you know Ed Harris, who is a cop in the town. Uh, well, he's the sheriff. Um, Alan Pingborn. He's chasing this uh, this car... We don't actually see who's driving it, but uh, there's the uh, the little bell hanging off of the rearview mirror mm. that we later see in the shop. It's the bell that hangs above the door. Um, so he's chasing this car because it's a hit and run scenario, and he runs it off the road and it tumbles down this hill and literally yeah explodes. And uh, then you know the sheriff goes back into town and he sees this other car behind him. That's a totally different car, but we see inside it has the bell hanging from the uh, yeah. the rearview mirror. So, you know, we know, the audience knows that, like, okay, this is, like, a malevolent force that's coming into this town. How do you feel about that opening with the car chase? Like, Well, I mean, I'll tell you, the sequence is fine. Yeah. It's well made. Mm-hmm. It's well shot. Like, and I really like the opening. There's a, there's a great opening shot where, you know, this beautiful landscape and we kind of slowly crane down to see the car being where, you know, they're trying to jumpstart a car and the whole chase is well, uh, well edited, well paced. It's, it's, you know, it's exciting. The, you know, the car going off the road, it's all great. It's all well made, but I just don't think it's not needed at all for the story it's not a needful thing it is not a needful thing whatsoever um the movie didn't need another explosion no (laughs) because because there are multiple explosions later on and i think like it made my viewing experience of the theatrical cut better 
kind of not knowing anything about who this Leland Gaunt is mm. and coming to the realization myself of like, oh, okay, like he is totally, there's, there is something uh, magical about him. And then later realizing like, okay, no, he is literally like the devil. Um, yeah, it's just having that action sequence all up front, which takes up that much time. <laughs> I think it's 10 minutes for the, the car chase and then five minutes of like sort of bridging the gap. Like investigating the burnt license. Plate yeah. You're investigating. Like and it's just, none of that is necessary at all to oh. my enjoyment of the theatrical cut, which I did enjoy. I, I like the movie. Um, it, it doesn't add anything to the story. Really. It doesn't add anything to the characters. It only serves to sort of give the audience more of a suspicion of Leland Gaunt before we even really meet him. So I think it was right to cut it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I feel like because of how the film is set up, like in the, in the way that it presents like a small town and all these like different characters there, I do kind of leave the film wanting more. Like, not, I don't want the film to continue after the film ends. But I kind of want to go back and just watch these characters interacting in that town. Like, uh, the ending seems somewhat abrupt. Like, not necessarily the ending, but like, the, it, everything escalates very quickly. I'm not sure of the time frame of the film. I think from be from the beginning to the end, I think it's maybe just like one week or something like that it feels that way yeah um like at the most yeah one week which seems very That's quick a, for an entire town to, to yeah just go to hell <laughs> yeah it's like the there's like church burnings not, and, not uh, even burnings but like explosives yeah like, well there's <laughs> the one that explodes it's in the theatrical cut and then in, in tv cut Myra, who doesn't really have much to do in the theatrical cut, who works at the restaurant with Polly, like, Alan runs into her on the street, and she's like, they're burning the Baptist church! And, like, they do kind of throw that in the theatrical cut. There's, like, a line where somebody says, like, the Baptist church is burning down. But it's, like, thrown in in the, this, like, laundry list of all this other stuff that's going on. <laughs> like, oh, and by the way, there's a church burning down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But, I mean, just, like, you know, like, the... Hugh and the bartender shooting each other. I can kind of see that because, you know, they, there was already animosity there. But, like, just everything. There's a riot at the end of this movie. Yeah, they're throwing trash cans through windows and shit. Yeah, stealing <laughs> chainsaws. <laughs> and handing them off awkwardly. It was weird that in the, in the uh, theatrical, theatrical cut, uh, they talk about, you know, the... the See, it's weird because I want to talk about things and I'm trying to remember, like, which was in which version. In the theatrical version, the high school principal, or at least the prince, a principal of a school, buys, like, a first edition of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Yes. I think we only know he's a principal because of a line in the TV version. I don't think they say anything about him being a principal. But also in the TV version, despite the fact that we see him looking at a copy of Treasure Island... <laughs> at the end and when everybody's sort of like starting to calm down and realize holy shit we've all gone crazy uh 
they start saying Huckleberry Finn. In the TV version. In the TV version. What do you mean? They, they just start saying the name Huckleberry Finn? Yeah, like, I don't... There must have been some sort of confusion. During, like, maybe when they started shooting, it was gonna be Huckleberry Finn. And then they didn't have that prop. Oh, I see. So, I see. So, you're saying, like, you know, oh, he stole my copy of Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. Because um, he, he even says, like, Mark Twain, first edition. Huh. And, like, he yells that when they're, like, fighting outside of the truck at the end. And, like, the little girl says, like, I stole Mr. Whoever's Huckleberry Finn. But in the theatrical cut, they it, say, they say Treasure, Treasure Island. Island. Yeah, so that's why I'm thinking, like, they must have, like, shot it Huckleberry Finn, like, those later scenes. And then when they went back to shoot the scene where he buys it, they were like, oh, we don't have Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> we have Treasure Island. Let's just do that, and then we'll loop it later. And then they just never looped the TV version, maybe. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a weird, just glaring flaw there. <laughs> like, Because you're just kind of, wait, we saw it earlier. What Huckleberry Finn? Did he buy two things? Did he have two needful things? There's also, in the theatrical cut, like, random uh, background arguments while Alan is walking through the town square, seeing all the havoc. And there's two people who have Needful Things shopping bags, and they're, like, hitting each other with them, and one of them actually says... <laughs> oh, okay, I don't remember the exact line, but he says the word Needful Thing. He says something like, That's my Needful Thing! <laughs> and it's like, no, you can't... It's good that that was cut, because what... Well, it's just like it's it's all of the struggles that have been intricately laid just sort of boiled down to just like this like base kind of you know yeah. my needful thing no my needful thing just smacking each other with the shopping bags it's just sort yeah. of like a, a cartoon version of it and it just seems like if they have those shopping bags it would seem like they each have their needful things yeah what else do they need yeah like I don't. <laughs> And the ending, all right, I, I want to clarify, I, I like this movie. I really like this movie. Yeah, you said that you grew up with this movie. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of those movies, every few years I watch it again, and I like it a little bit less, but I still <laughs> like this movie, and a lot of that might be nostalgia, but I, there is some really good stuff in it. Ed Harris is great in this. Yeah, he is. He, there are some moments that, uh, are, yeah, he really uh, does a great job. Um and I'd say the same about Max von Sydow. Yeah. To me, he's the thing that really grounds the movie. Because there are a lot of scenes that are a bit repetitious. Where it's, this character comes into the shop and is timidly looking around. And, you know, uh, Max von Sydow guides him to whatever his needful thing is. And we see that same scene, essentially, like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> five six seven eight times <laughs> um but every single time it's entertaining because max von Sydow is so great and i just love his voice and the way that he's just like his cadence and delivery of everything is just so uh just wonderfully malicious it looks like he's having a really great time yeah i feel like this was probably a fun shoot for him uh, yeah it seemed like he was just like loving it well i mean he gets to seduce bonnie bedelia 
yeah, that's uh, quite the benefit. <laughs> I believe this was her second Stephen King project. She was the lead actress in the uh, Toby Hooper miniseries of Salem's Lot in the 70s. Um, and I thought it was interesting that, like, Max Moncito is... Oh, I don't know why I keep saying Max. <laughs> Max Moncito. Um, he, he's playing the devil here. Yeah. And I think it's kind of cool because, like his previous roles have kind of been on the opposite side where we've seen him in like the exorcist where he's like taking on the devil and he's like the holy one. Yeah. And in his first big and, hit, the seventh yeah, seal, the seventh he's seal. in the, he's a knight in the crusades Yeah, and he's having a crisis of faith, but still he's, his whole purpose is, you know, he's a crusader. Yeah. So seeing him on the opposite end is really cool. And he also, um, this is a film that, you know, in recent years, nobody really, thinks about i i've never seen it but in its time it was huge in 1965 he was in the greatest story ever told he played jesus oh yeah and um it was amusing because all right so in that film he worked with charlton heston who played john the baptist and charlton heston in the ten commandments played moses Mm -hmm. and in some scenes in the ten commandments it shows moses as a young boy and that young boy was Charlton Heston's son, Fraser C. Heston, who directed Needful Things. And he cast Max von Sydow as the devil. Yeah. So he brought it full circle. Yeah. So it's like Moses teaching Jesus how to be the devil, sort of. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's, just, it's just amusing, the connections there. I wonder if there was a point, because the majority of uh, this director's uh, projects either film or mostly television um this is one of his few things that didn't have his father in it and i'm wondering if there was a point where he was like oh well we should have charlton heston be leland gaunt you think he would cast charlton heston as leland gaunt and not uh alan pingborn in 1993 how old was heston in 1993 probably 60 something well, because, I mean, Ed Harris in the movie, he's, he doesn't look young. No, he just looks like a... Looks like he's in his 50s. Really? I would say, like, he's probably, like, 51, 52, something like that. I'm just curious now how old Ed, Ed Harris is. I have well, no idea. I will say, because like, I was wondering the same thing about Max von Sydow, and Because he, he... Oh, he has no age. No, because he always <laughs> looks eternally just elderly. And part of that is because of The Exorcist, where he was actually way younger than he looks. And they, yeah. And they made him look, they, they, his makeup. Yeah, the great Dick old. Smith makeup there. But, I mean, you look at him in The Exorcist compared to, say, Needful Things, and it, that makeup is so great that, like, it just looks like that's that's how he looks when he's old. Yeah. Ed Harris was born in November 1950. So he was 42, 43 no when this movie came well, out. My apologies to Ed Harris, but... So he was in his early 30s when he did Night Riders and Creepshow. And the right stuff, which sort of, like, broke him into... It broke larger him. Larger things. <laughs> it broke him. No, it, I mean, I don't know. It's something with, like... I mean, he's got, like, the bald... The baldness. Yeah. And he just has, like, a weathered face. That he just feels older than, I guess, he is. But. What's he... Where is he? What's he up to? 
Yeah, he's one of those actors, like earlier I mentioned Gary Sinise, he's one of those guys who, like, whatever that, like, he was huge a few years ago, what the hell ever happened, well, like, 20 years ago. <laughs> I feel like he was just in something. Was it, like, a TV thing? Oh, he was on the show Westworld. Right, 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 there you go. Yeah, I'm going through his IMDb, and he's got a lot of stuff here. Oh, he was in, um, a film of the Sam Shepard play Buried Child playing the character that i played when i did that in school probably much better oh yeah and we spoke about him on our uh, episode where we talked about the movie gravity he has a cameo as the mission control voice sort of like a apollo 13 reference there mm. yeah it's crazy because like max von Sydow was about 64 when needful things came out and i mean he's still alive today he's like 88 years old yeah he was in the force awakens a few years ago yeah a couple years ago unfortunately in a rather small role i would have liked to have seen it more yeah but i feel like that was a tease for something else later on yeah there's something else with that character that we don't really know yet which hopefully they've already shot just in case he is mortal yeah um but yeah i really liked um in needful things i think the whole cast held it pretty well certain things get a little over the top main accents and the main <laughs> well the one in particular well i guess like there's a uh, wilma her accent i don't know what's going on with that accent that's just like a rural redneck accent yeah i i don't really think like maine it seems a little more i don't know but i mean i there's people around here in upstate new york who kind of talk like that mm -hmm. i feel like it's almost like no matter what part of the country you live in if your neighborhood looks a certain way you might have that accent is that the most elitist thing i've ever said <laughs> <laughs> i just you know like there's we're well, you know, certain neighborhoods have, <laughs> I don't mean that, certain neighborhoods have that accent. Neighborhood is definitely the wrong word because they'd be places that wouldn't be considered a neighborhood because there's no neighbors. Right, um, right. I mean, we're in upstate New York. No, I know there's what you're, I know plenty what you're of people about. with accents. You hear it, and it's like, that, oh, they're that from a the lot south? of people That a lot of people would label as southern accent. Yeah, but really, it's, but just it's not. It's just, yeah. It's a rural accent. Yeah, no, I, rural, I, yeah, I understand. The rural juror. But then there's also right. Amanda Plummer. <laughs> oh, she, my God. Who, she's doing something that I don't really know... Uh, what accent that is it's more of like a jersey or boston kind of accent but that's i mean amanda Plummer. like you can watch like any of her movies and you're always like i don't know what she's doing <laughs> and she's great i love amanda Plummer. but like that's one of the things i love about her it's just like i this crazy person wandered on a set <laughs> yeah i mean she plays uh, this character nettie who is uh rather um how would you describe her i wouldn't say she's crazy she's she's been through trauma yeah she's she, um yeah. she she was married to an abusive man who she killed in self-defense um i mean she definitely has her mental issues so like she's a little she's a little not very smart yeah, she's almost, like, childlike in a lot of ways. Very naive. But also, um, yeah, kind of crazy. Mm. Seems like she's ready to go off the handle. And she does. 
And she does, yeah. But she makes the best pie. So everybody puts up with her because, well, she's, she makes that great pie. Yeah, that, that apple pie. Nettie's apple pie. I always found her reaction kind of odd when, when she breaks into, not even breaks into, when she sneaks into Buster Keaton's house to hang all those tickets and everything. And then she looks at the fridge and like there's a recipe stuck on the fridge with a magnet for like somebody's pie. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not sure what face she made. She's like, holy crap, this looks delicious. Is that the face she's making? Or I thought it was like somebody's ripping off her recipe. I've thought that at times too. I don't know. I've gone back and forth. I can't interpret her reaction. It must be connected to something that was cut out and not even inserted into the TV version. Or Amanda Plummer was just being weird. Like I don't, I don't know. But why would they shoot that thing with the with the recipe anyway? What does that have to do with anything? It must have something to do with something, and maybe it's some random thing in the book. I've read the book. It's been a very long time. I didn't feel like rereading it for this because it's like seven hundred something pages, um, and I'm I'm a slow reader anyway. But there is a lot of stuff in the book that's not in the movie. Um, the villain from the novella The Body, which is what the movie Stand By Me is based on, is a main character in the book. Um, he actually uh, gets a lot of explosives for Gaunt. He sort of like works for him. Um, there's also like there's you, wait, you're talking about Buster Keaton? No, uh, Ace Merrill is his name. He's played by Kiefer Sutherland in Stand By Me. Who was he in Needful Things? No, he's not. In, he's in the book. He's not in the movie at all. Oh, 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 oh. I yeah. gotcha. I gotcha. Um, and then there's, like, in the movie, there's the stuff about, like, the, the Baptists versus the Catholics. In, in the book, there's, like, there's so much, like, religious stuff going on. Like, um, there's, like, this big, like, sort of, like, evangelist group. Um, who are just, you know, kind of the scary kind of evangelists that you don't really want to hang out with because they're just going to be talking creepy to you. I don't know. Um, and sort of like one of like their, uh, like the main people in that group is like this, like this very beautiful woman who like everybody in town says kind of like very creepy sexual stuff about, you know, but she is like, no, no, I'm not married. I'm, you know, I can't have sex till I'm married. And she is dating... I don't even remember who she's dating. Maybe it was Norris Ridgwick? I don't remember. Um, but anyway, her boyfriend is another main character that may or may not be in the movie. It's been a long time. But I remember her needful thing was this, like, splinter that was from Noah's Ark. Wow. And she was like, oh my god, this relic. I believe that's what it was. Um... I don't... Uh, I wish I could remember more about this. I'm, like, speaking about, like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember this. But, like, so she does whatever she does that's bad to get her needful thing. And then um, she ends up killing herself. And it's, like, a big chunk of the book. And, I mean, but it's one of those things, like, we were saying with, like, you know, it having to be split up. And, you know, The Stand was an eight-hour miniseries. It still had to leave out, like, half the stuff in that book. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to make, like, a two, technically three-hour movie 
out of like a 700 something page book stuff falls to the wayside yeah you know and i think like um well i think that the theatrical version of the movie works as a as a movie yeah the way that it's structured and just by nature of like how many characters you have and how many sort of subplots are going on and the way that it all feels like a um moral story you know like to me it feels like it's like an episode of like the twilight zone or an episode of like uh tales from the crypt or something like that and it feels like the kind of story that would be more suited for television than a movie because there is so much story going on it could be a whole season yeah, you could you could totally build an entire season of a TV show off of it, which very well be the case when uh, this because apparently there is a TV show in the works based on Stephen King's books. Called yeah, they're Castle ripping Rock. off. I don't even remember which episode it was, but there was an episode we did years ago where I said like, "Oh, it'd be really cool if there was a TV show just called Castle Rock." And, like, it was, like, each season they did, like, a different Stephen King book or something. It was all the interrelating characters. And uh, those fuckers, they must have heard the podcast. Because <laughs> they're doing it. Yeah, I think they owe you money. Yeah, I'm waiting for my check. I think Stephen check. King owes you money. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't think that's how it's going. I think it's it's going to be taking place in Castle Rock. And I th- I've heard different stories from different people. I'm not sure exactly what the series is going to be. Um, but it might be like whole new stories using characters that have appeared in various, uh, books and short stories he's written. There's, there's a ton of new Stephen King stuff coming out. Like even after like, you know, we just talked about the dark tower and it Gerald's game just came out two weeks ago on Netflix, like a Netflix original. I haven't watched it yet. I heard it was very good actually. Yeah. I think if you were trying to be like a Stephen King completist, It'd be like a full-time job. Oh, God. Yeah. You'd have to be Stephen King <laughs> to be a Stephen King. And I'm least. sure there are several adaptations that he has not seen. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's got to be, right? At some point, you just sort of just like, mm, no, I ain't going to see that. <laughs> yeah. Are there any uh, TV shows that already exist that this reminded you of in any way i mean besides you know you said like it's kind of like an episode of the twilight zone or something uh but i mean as far as like you know the the setting and like the characters and um i mean it <laughs> i feel like you're leading me on here um oh, I'm just or leading me leading me towards a certain answer uh yeah there were definitely moments that i felt like uh were very reminiscent of twin peaks which had come out in 1990 and 1991 so this was like two years after uh twin peaks was on the air and it is very similar in that way of like it's a small town there's a whole bunch of different characters that each have their own story going on but they all kind of overlap over each other and there are a lot of like really quirky kind of weird characters um i mean like amanda Plummer's like nettie feels like she could fit at home in twin peaks she's sort of a combination of uh nadine and something else i can see that yeah and um buster is sort of the um benjamin horn yes yeah there's even the name leland yeah and then leland gaunt 
And then, of course, Major Briggs as the and, Reverend. Yeah, and Don S. Davis, who played Major Briggs in Twin Peaks, uh, makes an appearance as the uh, Baptist Reverend. Which is always nice to see him. I, I like, And I like the scene when he picks out his needful thing. Yes, that's very awkward. <laughs> that's... Uh, one thing that's weird about there being like a three-hour TV version is that like some scenes in the TV version are shorter than the theatrical version because like they, on TV they couldn't show some of the more sexual aspects. Yeah, and a lot of the language is awkwardly edited around. Yeah. Um. Forget you. Nobody ever says forget you. Why yeah, is that you. how they replace like <laughs> that stupid CeeLo Green song? It's not called Forget You. That doesn't make any sense at all. Anyway, um, but yeah, his his uh, needful thing was some sort of ancient sex totem or something. It was like a sculpture of like a I don't know what. I'm not even sure. I mean, it shows. We, we don't a even few, really know what he picked. Yeah, because it shows like a like a selection of different like erotica, erotic art, or something. and then he just he leaves just like with it like in his like you know, brown paper bag or whatever. Yeah, and, and you can bumps see... bumps into the, um, the Catholic priest. Yeah, and you can see it, like, it's in the brown paper bag, but it's kind of covered in a newspaper. So you can kind of see the shape of it, and it looks like a penis. Yeah. Uh, he's, like, his character in this is, uh, or his performance in this is very interesting. It's, it's comedic for the most part. And he's sort of like this bumbling guy, which I don't, for the most part, don't really associate with the character of Major Briggs on Twin Peaks. No, he's not really bumbling. Yeah. He's pretty straight-laced. Yeah. Maybe there's that one moment, maybe, in, in Twin Peaks where he's saying, like, oh, what does he say, like, Judy Garland or whatever? In the... Yeah, yeah, when he's all doped up yeah. after his encounter with Wyndham Earl. Maybe if Fraser Heston was like, all right, play this scene, or play this whole, <laughs> this whole character is Major Briggs, but all doped up. Well, he's the kind of guy who, like, he played very similar characters in everything that I've seen him. Any, anytime he pops up, he's playing a, a somewhat similar mm. character who usually is, like, that more straight-laced. He's, he's oftentimes a military man or a police officer or some somebody who's well-respected in whatever community. In this case, he's, you know, the... Baptist priest, minister, minister, reverend. I never know which uh, which term to apply. Yeah. But he is a very very small part of this movie <laughs> compared to everything else. Um, but yeah, it, I I did feel the Twin Peaks vibe. Yeah, and like Ed Harris is kind of doing like a Harry Truman and with his bumbling deputy Andy. Yeah, absolutely. And... Yeah. But and I mean like this past year, you know, there was the new. Twin Peaks, so it's 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 been on my brain because this was the year that I finally sat and watched the whole thing. Well, you've been into it for years, so yeah, that was definitely Peaks fresh on my, on my brain. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it involves the devil, which is kind of a uh, somewhat of a similar theme to Twin Peaks, and that fact, it's it's really. Uh, well, if you okay, if you want a real Twin Peaks deep cut and a okay. similarity to this, spoilers. No. Okay. Pittsburgh. Because isn't that where Alan Pangborn is coming from? Yeah, he's coming from Pittsburgh. It might just be because that's where Ed Harris came from, and they wanted to explain Ed Harris's accent, but 
Oh, really? Yeah. I don't remember if that was how it was in the book, but... Well, because, yeah, Ed, uh, Alan Pingmore's saying that he moved to the Castle Rock from Pittsburgh, and there's a cool scene where he's talking with uh, Leland Gaunt, and he's like, I've seen you before, haven't I? Yeah, we've, we've met in some big city somewhere or something. And he says he's from Pittsburgh, and he's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm from Akron, Ohio. But I like that this sort of recognition of, uh, of like, oh, I've, I've, I've touched you before, haven't I? Because hmm. he's, because Alan Pingborn is like running away from something. Yeah, he killed somebody, like sort of accidentally. Yeah, it, yeah, he talks about how he hit somebody a little too hard. Um, so he's seen all of this awful stuff. He's, he's coming from a place where like the devil has already made its work, yeah. you know, and he's trying to find some place away from all of that. And now, like, the devil has found him again, almost as if it's, like, following him around and is recognizing him from Pittsburgh. And to t- <laughs> the Twin Peaks deep cut is that uh, Agent Dale Cooper spent time in Pittsburgh and had a, uh, a traumatic incident there. And there's a great moment where uh, Bob uh, is... is laughing at him and says you know coop what happened in pittsburgh um so it's like there's this like i don't know this devilish presence in pittsburgh that's sort of following our uh our main character as he tries to escape it i'm really trying to remember now if in the book alan Payneborn originally came from pittsburgh and i in our george romero episode a couple months ago um i mentioned that i had just seen the dark half for the first time recently, which is another Stephen King movie that George Mara directed. Uh, he made it in 91 because Orion was going bankrupt. It ended up being released the same year as Needful Things. And so in both of these movies, you have the character of Alan Pangborn. And in Needful Things is Ed Harris. In The Dark Half, it's Michael Rooker. And The Dark Half takes place before Needful Things. And it talks about Alan Pangborn first arriving in Castle Rock. Um, okay. Huh. And at the time, he has a wife and child who, by the time of Needful Things, he does not have them anymore. And that's left ambiguous as to what... Probably in by book... me, in this podcast, it will be left ambiguous. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. I see. But you, I'd recommend... Either reading both or watching books these and, films, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's weird, like, another... Not to dwell too much on this TV show that is not really connected to Needful Things at all. <laughs> but, like... Um, like, there was some stuff in the third season of Twin Peaks, The Return, um, that I was... That just sort of, like... I was thinking about, while well, watching Needful Things again, like, after having seen The Dark Half... And it's like, there's two Sheriff Pangborns. <laughs> right. And all right, so in real, in our reality, Amy Madigan, who is the lead actress in The Dark Half, is married to the actor Ed Harris. That's a real life thing in our reality. So she's in The Dark Half playing this one character, and he's in Needful Things playing this other character. And it's, just, it's odd to think that, like, her character in the dark half any scene she shares with alan pangborn is this alternate version of her real life husband yeah 
And like that is odd. The dark half was you know shot two years before it was actually released, so there's no way she could know like oh at some point in the future my husband is going to be playing this character, right? Or that Ed Harris would know like oh at some point in the future I'm going to be playing. Yeah, and it's like I I don't know. It's just watching Twin Peaks this past summer has just like affected everything the way I think about different movies. I don't know. I mean it makes sense. It's <laughs> it, it's definitely a. Uh... It's an eye-opening experience because it forces you, you you to think about things in a much different way. Yeah. And then you apply that thinking to other things and you start to <laughs> see these weird patterns and like, I don't know, making weird connections about stuff. Yeah. But, so, yeah, well, but we won't talk about Yeah, let's uh, move Twin on Peaks, from the peaks. But, uh, if you haven't seen Twin Peaks, go watch it because it's, uh, it's amazing. And make sure you watch all of it. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> um, one thing... I do want to talk about is so I had said uh, in the Romero episode about the dark half that um, like I thought it was really good but it wasn't like or maybe I didn't say this I definitely thought it maybe I said it just in conversation around that time I'm not sure um, but like I remember thinking it, just, it looked odd like it looked maybe a little too slick or something and Needful Things also has this weird look to it and it reminded me of years ago um Downstairs from where we're recording now, I watched Brian De Palma's Raising Cain with you and our friend Christopher Phelps, a bunch of other people. And I remember Chris... With uh, with John Lithgow. Yeah. yeah. And I remember a comment that Chris made afterwards was that it looked like a TV movie. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was going to say about needful things yeah and it's that it, it looks like it was made for tv like the more i think about like all these like early 90s films like they there was this weird kind of tv movie look going on at the time yeah for sure and i don't know what it is like it's just maybe like the film stocks kind of like caught up with one another where it's like they were using the same kind of film on tv and in movies mm-hmm. i i don't know like but everything was kind of it's just lit in a certain yeah. way because at the time of... i remember being very taken aback by that statement because i was like what are you talking about it's raising cane this is an amazing fucking movie and like the way it's shot brilliantly but like then i you know time passed i took a step back and i was like oh he's right <laughs> there's just a certain kind of yeah yeah and it's nothing against like how it's shot like i mean i think needful things like does look very cinematic yeah, and there's like, definitely some, like, interesting compositions and things, and the camera moves well. Yeah, exactly. And, like, it, it's directed well. Mm. Um, but it's just, like, the actual, like, color grade or just the texture of the movie just feels yeah. like it's made for a television thing. Like, if you look at it compared to, like, say, like, the It miniseries, they probably look the same. Yeah. Like, they look like they could have been from the same movie or something. I don't know. Kind of weird. I didn't really like um, the way they showed the... Uh, I'm not sure what you'd even call them. The little, the little fantasies people were having when they would like touch their needful thing. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that too. It's like they would shoot it... Uh, I believe they would shoot it 8 frames per second. And then... Um, was it they do like multiple printing or something? I'm not sure the exact style they use, but like I, to me, that seemed the most TV of it. Yeah, because it, it's it's such a cheap looking effect. Yeah, like they'll touch their their needful thing, 
and then it'll be this really cheesy lightning electricity effect yeah that looks like i mean for 1993 it looks like something that you'd see on like you know are you afraid of the dark a nickelodeon or something or it the miniseries <laughs> <laughs> um so you get the you know the hand-drawn lightning effect that sort of sparks them and then we'll see this like oftentimes it'll be like stock footage flashbacks of things or the, this effect that you're talking about where it's like it's got like this ghosting kind of uh yeah different uh shutter speed or frame rate going on and it looks ugly yeah it just and does not look good at i all. would think they would want the reality to look kind of blah and dreary which it does but in a good way um because it's got that well it's like you know most of the films we're discussing this month it's got that great like autumn feel to it yeah um but i kind of almost want there to be like a wizard of oz moment where like when they go into their fantasy and they're thinking about this thing they really need it's like oh it's we're going from sepia to technicolor yeah so the and most, suddenly it's the most it's, beautiful it's like the reality that they could have yeah and it's like the most beautiful more beautiful and exciting than the reality that they're in instead of it just being like yeah really cheap looking stock footage of a horse race or of mickey Mickey male playing baseball (laughs) which in the book it's sandy koufax but they couldn't get the rights i guess to sandy koufax so they got mickey mantle yeah i don't well i mean i guess mickey male has more of a uh, name recognition because i don't know sandy koufax but When I was a little kid, I had a Dennis the Menace comic, and there was a story um, that took place on the beach, and somebody had written, it was a very old comic when I got it, somebody had written in pen in this one panel, like, there's a little talk balloon coming out of the sand, and it just says, hi, I'm Sandy Koufax. Because it's the sand. That's, yeah, that's a, sorry, a little side thing. <laughs> that's just always what I think of when I hear about Sandy Koufax. But anyway, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, they were very proud of the effects that they, they didn't do any um, digital. And this was, I mean, the early 90s, like, when people would do digital, it wouldn't always work out that great. But, I mean, this was the same year that Jurassic Park came out. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, like, you know, interviews with Fraser C. Heston saying, like, you know, I'm really happy with the effects team that we kept it practical and, you know, do did a lot of, like, in-camera stuff and... And I mean, there's a lot of explosions in this movie. Surprisingly. Which, yeah, you don't... It's like this you, small town Yeah, movie. when you start watching the movie, you don't think there's going to be... I mean, one explosion would seem kind of surprising, but there's... I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes down. Cl- the classic people jumping in the air explosions, which I, I've never been present for an explosion, so I don't know if that's how I would respond, or if, if like the impact would just lift my body into the air. Mm-hmm. Or what that, I mean, that's what happens when something blows up. People just leap. Yeah, like they're bouncing on a goddamn trampoline. Yeah. Um, and I think some of those also make it kind of feel a bit like TV. It looks like something that might be on like, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation or something. But I don't think they ever actually blew anything up for Star Trek. I, They mostly did. A lot but, of sparks. Yeah. <laughs> Because this, they actually blew things up and filmed it. Oh, yeah, I mean, that, that church explosion is, like, huge. And then when Needful Things explodes, that's that's a gigantic explosion. Yeah. And I, in 
um, the first issue of the magazine Imagine Movies, um, they actually go into a, a little detail about like the stuff they used <coughs> to make those explosions. And I was going to like write that down and repeat it, but I don't feel like telling you guys how to blow things up. If you really want to know, you can look that up somewhere. Yeah, like the Anarchist Cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I I think it's... I mentioned, like, Roger Ebert's negative review, which he I think he gave it, like, a 1.5 out of 4 stars or 5 stars. I don't remember what the what his rating scale is. Um, but I also saw, like, on Rotten Tomatoes, it, it has, like, a 26% freshness rating see that's kind of surprising to me because i feel like anyone i ever meet who has seen the movie and it comes up somehow they maybe it's a nostalgia thing maybe they were a certain age at a certain time but it, they have very positive memories of it yeah i mean i ha- i knew nothing about this movie i had never really heard of it or seen it anywhere or heard anybody talking about it until you brought it up and i you know so to me it's kind of i guess it's not really surprising that this movie is sort of somewhat forgotten i thought after stranger things people would be seeking out needful things yeah when stranger things came out i was like oh they're doing it like needful things i get it because the font looks very similar yeah yeah but uh but no (laughs) but we were saying um you know it's surprising that like i mean when you're releasing a movie on like blu-ray and you have the movie, you have two different versions of the movie. Like, why not just put there? Like, because this Blu-ray has like no deleted scenes or anything, right? Yeah, I don't believe so. I think there's just the trailer. And it's like, wh- how does that happen? Where it's just like there's this entirely different version of the movie that's an hour longer. You, you can't even collect some of the deleted scenes, even if you're not putting them all together in a movie. It just seems kind of weird, like. And I would think that maybe now that, like, I don't know, it was such a huge success, maybe they're, you know, companies will be willing to sort of dip back into the Stephen King well and kind of put some of the stuff out. Or they'll just do a remake. Or, yeah, I mean, most likely this Castle Rock TV show will have a season-long arc based on Needful Things. Which I'd be open to. Uh, this is one of those movies where it's like, I really like this movie, but it's like, I could see it like a remake done well like, yeah that could exist absolutely which i mean that that's not always how it works out like i mean you know they, they've gone back to the well a few times for certain stephen king stories you know there's three versions of carrie which sorry guys we still haven't gotten to the remakes yet we we know we said years ago we'd get to them someday um and of course there's the infamous remake of the shining the six-hour miniseries from the 90s, which Stephen King prefers to the Kubrick version. Um, everybody else does not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm happy for you, Steve. You got, you got what his you version, wanted. So, but, yeah. Yeah. You got your CGI topiary animals and no hedge maze, but... I don't know. And you, no Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, and you got your... There's no axe. You got your croquet mallet instead of the axe. That's fine, and... Yeah, it's one of the um, the interesting things about adaptation. You know, you can't 
the book is the book and then a movie has to accept the fact that it's a movie and at a certain point it can't just be word for word everything that was on the page and i get how that could be frustrating if you're the person who wrote the book and you would want to you know like you know 16 17 years later he's like oh okay i wrote i wrote this script we got the guy from wings we're gonna do it <laughs> it's gonna be great um and yeah you know it's it is closer to the book but it's not as good as kubrick's version and I don't know. I went off on a tangent here talking about The yeah, Shining, but, but like, I mean, uh... <laughs> but like, I'm just saying, like, you know, I was listing before many of the differences between Needful Things, the book, and the movie, and like, I, I like the book, I like the movie, and uh, I'm curious to see if you know somebody tries it again. It could be really good. In the in the movie Needful Things, what are some of your favorite scenes? What are the scenes that stick out to you as being like, that's really great. Oh, pretty much anything with Buster. Yeah, who is that actor, by That's the way? That's J.T. Cause, Walsh. Because he does a, a really uh, good job of just going further and further and further off the deep end. He was one of those actors that, like, when he was alive, I didn't really, like, notice him or know much about him. I didn't even realize that he was the guy from Needful Things. When, when he died in, like, the late 90s, I remember hearing all these people being like, oh, the great J.T. Walsh. Like, all these people who had worked with... He was one of those, like, actors' actors. Mm-hmm. And he could... The reason I'd never really known anything about him was because he could just disappear into these different roles. Um, he was in A Few Good Men. He's really great in that. Have you seen that one? No, I've... I've no, oh, no, no, yeah, I haven't seen that. Okay. Um, I think that was another Castle Rock movie because that was directed by Rob Reiner. That makes sense. Um, that was, like, the year before Needful Things. Uh, he did the movie Wired which was the John Belushi biopic. Biopic might be the wrong word because the movie is about John Belushi. Like I haven't seen it. It's been described as John Belushi basically is like ODing and then looking back at his life with like an angel or something. And people who knew and worked with John Belushi were very upset by this movie. I can imagine why. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah. And there was some, there was some movie shortly after that. JT Walsh was like, uh, cast in like a Dan Aykroyd movie. And when Dan Aykroyd realized that, Oh, there's a guy from wired in this movie. No, he had JT Walsh fired. He didn't want anything to do with anybody who had anything to do with wired. Wow. Which I can understand if it's, I don't know. If your close friend had this wackadoo movie made about them. Yeah. After their death. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't want anything to do with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I haven't seen Pleasantville. I think that was J.T. Walsh's last movie. Um, have you seen Pleasantville? No. Well, uh, well, I should... A one long of those time ago. It was, like, like, like the, on HBO at yeah. my friend's house, like, back when it first came out, you know? Yeah, but, like, those are the big ones that I can think of. Um, but, like, I guess he just worked with a lot of people, and they all, like, really respected him, which is based just on A Few Good Men and Needful Things. I can completely see that. He plays two very different characters in those movies. And in this, he just, he walks that line between just, like, being a complete clown. Yeah. Like, most of the laughs in the movie, well, it's, like, between him and Leland Gaunt, basically, mm-hmm. where, like, the laugh lines are coming from. Um, he's also like this just sadistic son of a bitch and he's very paranoid on the brink of sanity yeah and then like he kills his wife off screen and it's hilarious <laughs> says the trailer I yeah guess. <laughs> I, 
it's really i mean it's disturbing because like i wasn't really expecting them to go that far with it and it's even more disturbing of a death than like because earlier on we've we had seen um wilma and nettie fight yeah and kill each other and they're getting stabbed you know and we're seeing the knife go th like all the way through the body and stuff so there's like a little bit of gore not much but like when when buster kills his wife you don't even see any of it just the blood on just like the blood on him after he, after the deed is done yeah and he's like rinsing off the hammer in the sink yeah it's a hammer too it's just like it makes it so much more chilling a hammer that it. she gives to him so that he can break out of his handcuffs yeah and then he just snaps and fucking bludgeons her to death and it's yeah it's really it's it's, it's scary stuff but um back to my question what are some i'm of, sorry yeah um, what are some of the scenes that jump out to you as being uh you know like your favorite scenes <sighs> Um, if you had asked me before we rewatched it for this, I probably would have immediately said uh, Wilma and Nettie's. Yeah, fight that, that's one that. of the ones for me for sure. But like my memory of it is better than it is like because I just remember this whole thing as being like this one long scene where like Ave Maria starts playing and it just goes until they die. But it's weird because it's it starts out with that music and then it keeps stopping and starting again there's like other scenes in between which is fine this is like my main reason for not liking it is because it doesn't match my memory yeah because in my memory i'm not remembering it the way that you're describing it now i think i'm just remembering all the scene together because i think just yeah when you watch it you're, you, i don't know i don't remember cutting back and forth between different scenes because I'm trying to think. It's playing... Because in between there, there's the Hall of the Mountain King, where she's in Buster's house hanging that stuff. Nettie is. And it's while she's out of the house that her dog is killed. Right. But that music, the Ave Maria, is already playing, I believe, when Hugh shows up to skin the dog. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. And then, and then Ave Maria, uh, Maria comes back. Right, and, uh, and it's I mean, like the scene when Wilma sees the smashed windows and stuff. Yeah, and like the actual fight between those two women. Yes, that is one scene. Okay, that's that's what I thought you were saying that it cuts between that actual fight scene and other stuff. But I was thinking like when Ave Maria starts, like watching it this time, Ave Maria started, and I was like, oh, everything's about to happen right now. But it was weird that it was like, we're gonna play Ave Maria for a little bit, and then we're gonna do this other stuff, and then we're gonna come back to Ave Maria. Gotcha. But that's not really a knock against the movie, as it is just me being like, wow, my memory is so much better than this movie. Um, yeah, the the Wilma and Nettie's fight scene sticks out as one of the highlights. And, uh, and also the scene when Brian has the gun, and he's going to kill himself. Which in the book he does. That's what I was going to... I was going to ask about that, because I feel yeah. like there wouldn't have been that half measure in in the book yeah because it feels because it's awkward the way that it's handled in the movie even where it's like the gun goes off and then there's just sort of almost a throwaway line later of just like yeah he's you know he shot himself but 
He's, he'll be fine. Yeah. In the TV version, you see... <laughs> them loading up the ambulance. Yeah, and then you talk to Cora Rusk, the mom, briefly mm-hmm. there, and, like... Um... And then we never yeah. see Brian again. Yeah. He and, like, Alan is still... He's acting as if he did let this kid die. Yeah. Because he's very... Because he's like, I could have stopped it. And it's like, well, according to the screenplay, you did stop it. Well, because until I saw the the, uh, the extended version, I thought that maybe all of the lines referring to him being okay may have been, like, looped in after the fact. You know, mm. so that maybe they shot it where like he actually did kill himself, and then they decided, no, you know what, that's too dark. Let's just throw in a line where it's like, yeah, he's in the hospital, he'll be fine. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then at the end, there's that moment where he points out to his mother and says, you know, like your son is in the hospital. And I thought maybe that was added in later or something. Yeah. But then I watched the TV version and they distinctly showed the ambulance getting loaded up and them slapping the back of the ambulance and yeah. stuff. And it's in the TV version where they say, like, he's going to be fine. But in in the theatrical cut, it is sort of like, well, maybe, you know, I mean, a bullet went into his head. Maybe he's, like, going to have brain issues, which I, yeah. I don't know. It seems just like a weird thing. Why not just, like, just kill the kid, you know? Yeah, when in doubt, kill the kid. Yeah. But that whole scene of him, of, of Alan finding brian and the way that it's shot like we're underneath the docks and it's a really great uh just composition and ed harris's performance in that is like he you can see the gears turning like for the character not necessarily for the actor but like you can see like okay this character realizes that he has to be an actor now and he has to sort of change it and be like oh mickey mantle and yeah yeah, he's like oh yeah really cool card you got here kid um yeah and the kid actor does a great job i mean when he takes that gun out and points it at his head there's something like just really disturbing about seeing a child (laughs) with a gun to his head you know like (laughs) willing to end his own life like that it's like and that's when when the movie really kind of like you realize oh man this uh sleeland gaunt guy is just the worst he's driving a kid to do this kind of stuff Things don't always go well for kids in uh, Stephen King books. I mean, no. You just saw It and Pet Cemetery and uh, spoilers for Cujo. Have you seen Cujo? No, I've never seen Cujo. Never mind. But I, mean, I kind of just spoiled it anyway. I'm going to guess that things don't go well for the kid. <laughs> well, in, in the movie, they, they do. In the book, they don't. That was another one where the... You know what? Whatever. Spoilers for Cujo. In the book, Cujo, the, you know, it's a mother and son trapped in a car by a rabid St. Bernard. And at the end of the book, the kid dies because, you know, dehydration, there's basically starves and panics and freaks out, just dies. Uh, In the movie, they're like, let's not do that. Mm -hmm. So he almost dies, but uh, makes it in the end. I could say another Stephen King movie that I have seen that things don't go well for the kid. But I, but, but it could be a spoiler. Okay. But if I say spoilers for this movie, right? At this then point, that in and of itself is the... a spoiler. 
So how about I just leave it as, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, I already mentioned, I, I went down the list of all of the Stephen King movies that I saw. Yeah. In one of those, uh, you know, things don't go well for the kid. And I would like to say, I'm pretty sure I did not list mine. And I know that one of the ones that you've seen and I haven't seen has that in it. <laughs> okay, so if you follow all that, then I think we're good on spoilers. <laughs> all right. Uh... There is one moment that... You know what? I didn't answer your question. Yeah, you still have <laughs> been bumping around my question here. Yeah, maybe... Uh, a specific scene. That's Honestly, it might be when Alan, like at the very beginning, shows up at the diner. And it's just them all chatting. Yeah, that's nice. I like it. I like stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I hope that the devil doesn't come to town because I could just watch this all day. <laughs> at that point, we really, I mean, it could be a, just a soap opera TV show at that yeah. point, you know? And it's like, oh, he's got the ring and he shows it to Nettie mm -hmm. and, and she's like, you know, freaking out. And like when he finally uh, like proposes to Polly, you, you see the waitresses in the background watching, like they all know what's going on. See, I think that's another example of like just comparing the theatrical version to the tv version where it's like in the theatrical version that is his introduction that's like the first time <laughs> yeah. we see him is like he's in that flustered kind of like oh boy i'm gonna propose to you know my girlfriend right now and like he's got that excited thing and he's showing yeah showing the ring off and everything and so instantly he like we're just we're just with him you know what i mean yeah. in the tv version it's like we have 15 minutes of him like being police guy and it really just like you just don't need it. You That's really true. just don't need it. It doesn't do anything to, like, get us more on his side. Yeah. In that initial moment where he's fixing the car for Norris Ridgewick, I do like their back and forth, and it immediately establishes, like, this guy knows everything. We can get behind this guy because he's fixing this guy's car for him. Like Right, and he's being nice about it, too, because, like, the, the, the guy is like, oh, this always happens to me. It's, you know, all my fault. And he's yeah. like, no, no, it's not you. It's just... Just technical problems. It happens to everybody. You like Norris Ridgewick in this? Um, I like the scene where he, where in the theatrical cut, it's his introduction where he's in the mirror and he's like, you know, you know, he's like, Sarah, step out of the car, please. You know, he's in the bathroom just yeah. like talking to himself, like acting like uh, he's a tough guy. Um, but I don't know. He's, uh, he doesn't really have much to do in the movie. Yeah. Um, but he's funny. He definitely he leaves an impression. He's another one that pops up in the stand. Uh, that actor, like the following year, he um, he's in the first scene of the stand. He's the guy who spreads the plague. Uh, um, <laughs> that actor is married to the actress who plays Brian's mom. Oh well, there you go. I will just say, Brian's mom, in the scenes in the extended edition, which she's essentially cut out of the theatrical cut. Yeah, pretty much. But her scenes are out there. Where she's, she, her needful thing is this bust of Elvis. And she's like spending all of her day just like in her house, in the bed, with elvis bust on the pillow just like listening to elvis music 
and she's like wearing the Elvis sunglasses and then she's like there's this really weird scene where she's like making out with the bust and it's yeah very strange it's weird that they had issues getting the rights to Sandy Koufax but they were able to get two Elvis songs in the TV version yeah of this that's what I was thinking because there's Love Me Tender and um what's the other one Fool's Russian Fool's Russian yep I, I like when you see her silhouette singing uh, Love Me Tender to the bust. Yeah, that is a great... Yeah. I like It's a cool moment, for yeah. sure. Or she's just mouthing the words, yeah. One um, thing I do like about the like the fragmented nature of like a, you know, a three-hour film that's been cut down to two hours, you know, so there's seriously... There's obviously stuff going on in the margins that we're not really privy to. Yeah. Is the scene where Norris gets the mousetrap and you see Cora Rusk just like in the background of that shot um, like in the police station like he's like Norris Ridgwick is like going down the hall and you sort of like see her she's it's very obvious she's got the hair and the sunglasses it's like oh there's that crazy girl from the bar again who the hell is that woman um, like you see her in the background and then she kind of like slips away right before he's like, Oh, there's a gift here for me. What is this? And then later, you know, she says that like in that big, like ending scene, like, Oh, I'm the one who gave you the mousetrap Norris. Sorry. She didn't say it like yeah. that. I don't know yeah, what that yeah. voice was. I mean, essentially that's what it is. <laughs> it's, I keep, it is. Yeah. Cora Rusk. I, there's Cora Rusk. And there's Myra, the waitress, and there's Myrtle Keaton. For some reason, like those those names are hard in my head to remember which is which. The ending. Um, I have issues with the ending. What, what um, the way that it all just sort of wraps up with like a with a preachy speech from yeah, Pangborn, Edge, which can. There's other movies that kind of do that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Um, you know, some something like Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, it kind of works in that. Um, and uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, where there's all this chaos going on, there's a riot, and then it just, like, someone just starts screaming. And, you know, people try to start talking sense. But then there's scenes, or there's movies like Scrooged, I kept thinking of the movie Scrooged with this. Are you familiar with that? The Bill Murray film? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, that is a movie that just falls apart at the end. And I think it's supposed to be a happy ending of Scrooged. But if you're just like watching it, like as an, as an adult, like I loved it as a kid. I didn't really think much of it. As an adult, I was watching it. And I was like, this is just this TV executive having a nervous breakdown on TV. And then for some reason, everybody starts clapping and singing along. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean, if you, if you weren't a character who, if you weren't the audience who just saw his whole journey, yeah, it would just be like, what is with this guy? Cause there, he's like, I'm going to make you guys all work on Christmas Eve doing this telecast. And then he comes in at the end, ruins the telecast and just starts talking about how he, he gets Christmas now. And then this this mute kid talks, <laughs> and like I don't, and everybody's just into it, and everybody's just like little piece of your heart or whatever it is, like. Right. 
Um, is that what it is? A little piece of your heart? No, it's... It, um... <laughs> it doesn't matter. I... <laughs> in this episode about needful things, it doesn't... <laughs> Put a little love in your heart. But, That's, oh, sorry. Yeah. Put a little love in your heart. <laughs> um, and then, so for needful things, like, you know, Alan he's gonna shoot the priest <laughs> and then he finally just he doesn't shoot the priest which is good um and he just shoots in the air and he has everybody's attention and he just he's like sermonizes my god man would you stop and look at yourselves yeah um and it's weird that like that's what it takes that's all it took for everybody to be like oh for the whole time what to are be like, we yeah what's going on here yeah and i think that's part of i don't know i mean because what i think about watching the whole movie yeah is like what would it take for me what would my needful thing be to for somebody to be like i'll give you this but you gotta go kill this person's dog <laughs> like i feel like that's a huge <laughs> leap you know what i mean like that is a leap even to, not even you know kill this person's dog but like oh throw all, break all the windows in this person's house yeah. or frame this guy for extortion or do any of the awful things that people do. Well, I mean... And I I can't think of, a, of of anything that would be like... The thing with the break in the windows, it's like, well, he's like, was he 11? How old was he supposed to be? He's an impressionable kid, yeah. And, and then... And there's this adult who's telling him to do this. And and then for the killing the dog, it's just this bottom of the barrel drunk who just has no prospects whatsoever. Who apparently, according to some of Buster's dialogue, works for the city. I'm not exactly sure what he does. Cause yeah, keep, I don't know. He keeps saying, yeah, like, oh, I'm going to fire you and yeah. all this. Um, and maybe as far as, like, the planting of the money on Alan's boat, maybe Leland Gaunt was like, oh, I sold you this, like, erotic stuff, Reverend. Wouldn't it be horrible if your parishioners found out about that? And then maybe that's... But then what about, like, I mean, like, but the other, the Catholic priest is, like, slashing the dude's tires because he over a grail yeah i'm not saying it all makes sense i'm just yeah. saying like i just, just think... the few that you specifically mentioned at that point yeah right. i just think like yeah. i don't know it'd be hard pressed to like find like any sort of physical object that you could find in yeah, an antique store that'd be like okay now you gotta go slash this guy's tires or you gotta break into this guy's house and put uh those slip pink slips all over everything I'm trying I'd to... I'd be like, are you out of your mind? I ain't doing that. You can keep your damn thing. Like, I... I can't think of what my needful thing would be, but I'm sure there's something that I don't even know I need or think I need until all of a sudden it's just sitting there in front of me and I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, that... I, I'm that... gonna go murder a dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, oh, Jim, I... Yes, I I know exactly what you need. Yeah, Here's this, uh... Only copy of London After Midnight on uh, <laughs> on thirty five millimeter print here, uh, and uh, whatever whatever you got in your wallet uh, will be fine. It's just I just uh, need you to go do one little deed for me. Oh, I don't know if I would do it for that. May maybe I mean I should say no. I would not do it for that. But uh, Der Janischkopf, the Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, the F W Murnau directed, starring Bela Lugosi. That's lost. I might kill a dog for that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there you go. Um, 
I, I'm on that quest to see every movie that was ever nominated for Best Picture, but there's that one, The Patriot from 1929, that's missing. That would help me complete my goal. Is that worth a dog? It sounds like a very needful thing. Yeah. I don't think it's worth a dog. I, there, you know, I'm going to go on record and say the, nothing is worth a dog. Yeah, I mean, unless, <laughs> outside of just, like, you know, threatening you, your your loved ones or threatening anybody by that matter, you know, he's like, I'm going to kill this person if you don't kill this dog. Yeah. Then it's it's really hard for me to think of. Yeah, anything. should there be some weird situation like that? But, I mean, like, you just... What if it was like, I know what your needful thing is. Here's a billion dollars. Well, all right. <laughs> Let's see. All you got to do is uh, is throw apples through this person's windows, and I'll give you a billion dollars. I would do the apples. You would do the apples. I would do the apples. Because with that billion dollars, you can remodel their entire house. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I would do that. <laughs> no, that's my billion dollars. <laughs> they can go fuck themselves. They just got a bunch of apples. Well, I'm not... See, as an adult, I think I'd be different from Brian in that I would, after doing it, and then, like, once I had the billion dollars, I would go to the people and be like, look, all right, before you go flipping out and assuming it was the crazy lady with the dog that did this, Mm -hmm. I want you to know it was me, and it was for a thousand (laughs) dollars, and I'm willing to split the thousand dollars with you. You bastard. (laughs) Actually, I think that's probably more than five hundred dollars worth of damage there. So I'd be yeah. Like, that's I mean, you know that that I could I could rationalize and be like, I'm going. I'll take care of them. I'll take care of their house. You know, with a billion dollars, I'll I'll give I'll give them a million dollars out of a billion. Yeah, I'll give them one million dollars. I think that they would want me to break their windows for a million dollars. I don't think this would be a needful thing situation because I feel like there aren't stores that sell money. No, there aren't. Okay, this is just it. All right. But I was just thinking that, you know, what? where's the line? Because you say, like, yeah. you know, like, oh, nothing's worth a dog. Yeah. But I can guarantee you that there are people <sighs> out there who, given a billion dollars, would take no qualms in taking that knife to that dog. I don't think I could do it. I want to change the subject because I'm feeling really bad about myself right now. <laughs> but it's tempting. Because <laughs> right? I don't know. Because you I... think about it and you're like, oh man, a billion dollars. How much good could I do with a billion dollars? All I... it takes is just one dog. Could I physically do it though? I don't. That's the question. I mean. Because there's killing a dog, which is already deplorable, but skinning it. Yeah. That's, um. One thing that I wanted to bring up before we uh, wrap it up, I guess. At the very end of the movie, Leland Gaunt tells Alan Pangborn that he will encounter Alan's grandson. Yeah. I don't know if he's his son, maybe, maybe grandchild. Um, and he has I think the, it's son. the year laid out and everything, like 20. What was it, 2026 or something? Sounds right, sure. And uh, he's, he's like, I know you and Polly are going to get married, you're going to have a kid, and then that kid will have a kid, and I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet him, and I'm going to mess his life up. Now, my question is, 
the issue of this kid. Because earlier, that night, he goes to Polly, Mr. Gaunt, and for her needful thing, which was the cure for her arthritis, uh, he basically, when he came to call to do the deed, it was not just anything, it was like, you know, it was a sexual deed. And... How do you read that scene where he comes to her and, and she's at her lowest point. She's convinced that her fiance, uh, Pangborn, is actually extorting money from the town and doing all these, you know, running this, hiding a bunch of stuff from her. And so she's kind of like, you know, and she, she left the ring for him. Mm. So she's like, you know, essentially calling off their relationship. Yeah. And then Gaunt shows up and is like, hey, what's up? And they have sex. And it's really kind of weird. So are you asking, like, if I think she paid for her needful thing with sex or if she was just legitimately seduced by this person who relieved her pain? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Is it is it sort of a combination of the two, or is it just one or the other? Well, yeah, I'm not... Was there ever anything she had to do? No, but I mean, when she initially touched the necklace, the flash that she got was of them together in bed. Yeah. So it was almost like, this is how you're going to pay for this. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where if you're at your lowest point, and you can't even button your sweater yeah like she was just trying to do that like and there's those weird like they do like a like prosthetic fingers for her at one point when it's showing her in her like arthritic pain yeah because um, it's like are... uh like they're all swollen and yeah yeah um i don't know i i think it's ambiguous because like if you have pain that bad and somebody relieves it, you know, that's worth some sex for them. Um, and also, like... <laughs> oh, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> um, like, maybe he didn't even ask for it. I don't know. Max von Sydow shows up at your door. I think all the ladies are going to be giving it up. Yeah, some 64-year-old guy comes knocking. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty fit. Just a few years before this, he was in um, Hannah and Her Sisters, the Woody Allen film. And in that, he was... I don't remember if they were married or just dating. He was at least living with the character played by Barbara Hershey, who was quite young at the time. Um, Yeah, I don't know. So then... So... Okay, so then after all this happens, Polly realizes that, like... It was all one big misunderstanding with the extortion thing. You know, he was set up. Yeah. And then she finds out, like, oh, Gaunt is literally the devil. Oh, my God, I just had sex with the devil. And this might be... I might be carrying his child. And then there's the suggestion of, like, oh, you're going to have a kid. Yeah. And I, my, my thought is, like, okay, is she carrying... Yeah. Is she carrying demon seed, Tim? It's possible. It's very unsettling. 
Yeah. It just it just demands a sequel. Did you like how he just kind of drives off at the end, like? Um. And they just kind of watch him. It's it is rather odd. I mean, it's like I don't know. I guess it's kind of just saying. I mean, the whole town comes face to face with this thing that can only be explained by supernatural means, and they just they are powerless to stop him. So and, why even? fire any bullets or anything it's like well he just blew up and he's fine yeah so. it's kind of just yeah. like i mean there's nothing you can do to stop him and it's everybody just has to kind of come to accept that they're powerless to the devil i guess they just have to let him go i believe in the book when he gets away it's like again vague memories it's like his car transforms into like this big like carriage and he becomes like you like a demon in like physical form and just kind of like flies away uh i don't think that would have worked well on film that would have been i mean mean, on film it would have looked cool oh it looked cool but i think in the context of everything that went before it um you know that i mean i don't know it could have been kind of cool if like needful things explodes the 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 store and then in the in the fire you see you know gaunt come walking out and he's like his flesh is like burning up and he's like, you know, so his human form is being like melted away. And is then, he still telling about as he's talking, yeah, as he's talking and stuff. And you know, his clothes are being burnt up and like, you know, his skin is falling off. And then all that's left is like some sort of, you know, core demon form. And then he sprouts bat wings and flies away. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Now, if you, if one was just to see the TV version, um, what what is the point of the car chase <clears throat> from the perspective of the character Leland Gaunt? Why would he do that? Why? Like, what is he doing in that scene? When he like, cause, cause the car chase starts because he's entering into the town of Castle Rock. Yeah, and he plows into the side of a police cruiser yeah breaks the door right off breaks the door off and just yeah i think he's just messing with with people but do you think he's like testing you know their what their reaction is to stuff and i don't know but if he hadn't done that and if there hadn't been like that vague image of leland gaunt through the flames of the wreckage that alan saw do you think he would have even been like as suspicious as he is once he finally meets leland gaunt at the store because he, right off the bat, he's just like, who the fuck's this Leland Gaunt guy? He's yeah. like the one person who's like, I don't know about this. I don't know. I think like, I think it, 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 I think Leland Gaunt is in the town because of Alan Pangborn. Okay. I think the devil followed him to Castle Rock mm. from all the horrors of the city. I think when you, when you sort of boil it down to it, it's like, that's what the story is about. It's about this sheriff who's like trying to escape all of the stuff that, you know all the the horrible things people do by moving to a secluded area where people are nice, people are good, and then coming to realize that oh no, people are the same. Yeah. Regardless of where you are, people still succumb to the same weaknesses. People still hold the same stupid grudges. People still, you know, blame everybody else for for their lot in life and screw everybody over. And. uh yeah, so I think it's That's a good just moral for the whole thing. Yeah, and he actually says it like right at the beginning of the movie when, um, when Buster and 
uh, Norris Norris are fighting, and he, he, and that's a cool scene. I like Ed, how Ed Harris yeah. plays that, where he's yelling at them and stuff, and he's like, you know, I'll, one of you guys kill the other, and I'll whoever survives, I'll lock him up. But he says, you know, he's like, I came to Castle Rock trying to get away from people who just will crawl up each other's ass all the time. And now I find out that it doesn't matter where you are, people are crazy everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, like, what it's really all about, you know, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I think Gaunt is is terrorizing specifically uh, Pangborn. So based on the way he can manipulate people and exploit their fears and desires, um, you think Leland Gaunt uh, would, would would be pretty good in like politics? Yeah, I think uh, yeah he'd be a great politician. Do you think <laughs> that uh, you know there's certain situations that we sometimes get into as uh, as a nation? where um, it'd be handy for an Alan Pangborn just to show up and start firing into the air and then just, like, say some shit. Like... Yeah, I, I honestly think that uh, <laughs> if we could have a Pangborn who could climb up to the top of, I don't know, Mount Rainier or something in front of all of America and, like, just shoot into the air and be like, enough! Right now would be a pretty good time to do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's, that's one aspect of uh, the character of, um, well, the devil, basically, that I never really thought much of the other times I've watched the movie. But I it just, I couldn't not think about it uh, mm. this time, just thinking about, like, oh, this smooth talker uh, just moseys into town and figures out, oh, these people kind of don't like these people. And this person has this, like, long-held animosity towards this person. I'll just kind of nudge them in the right directions and boom, everybody hates each other. Brilliant. Now I'm going to give them weapons. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, when you put it that way, it's, <laughs> yeah. I like when he says to Hugh, as he hands him that rifle, he's like, in the end, I always offer them weapons. Yeah. It's, uh, he's like, I'm not forcing anybody to do anything. Yeah, they're all just doing it on their own. Yeah, and which technically is true. This world sucks. <laughs> well, it's just I don't know. Yeah, things have been things have been really rough lately. Uh, this year so far has been uh, not good. Nah. Uh, culturally or politically. Um, I th- and I think regardless of where your political affiliations lie, I think most people would agree with that sentiment. I can't imagine anybody of any party or belief system being like, this is a good time. Yeah, this is good. We're, th- everything is fine right now exactly the way it is. Uh, yeah, no, we're really... Yeah, I think... I mean, you bring up a good point. I mean, this movie is about a town... so totally divided and right now our country just feels that way like it's the most divided that i've ever seen it and 
and about everything. Yeah, about literally everything. It's it really is crazy. Like, cause there, you know, there's always been like certain topics you don't want to bring up with certain people because you don't want it to get political or anything. But like lately, it just seems like anything. Like I feel like somebody might be listening to this podcast and being like, "Well, we can't even talk about horror movies now without, without somebody." And yeah. it's like, yeah, sorry, but that's just. <laughs> I mean, that's. I mean, you're right. I mean, it is kind of difficult to, I mean, just with the, I mean, we're recording this, um, two days. Yeah. Two days after, uh, the terrible mass murder incident in Las Vegas. And, uh, and we got a lot of people who are just, you know, they, are you know, they're just mourning the losses and grieving and then a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to not let something like that happen again and then a lot of people who are angry about that and then and then a lot of people from all different political affiliations trying to pin the blame on everybody else and try to figure out what the shooter's motivations were and try to frame that into whatever you know oh he was either anti-trump or pro-trump or whatever you know and it's not all negative there's all i mean there's you know i mean the world is shit whatever but there's some nice stuff within the shit because one thing you can see when tragedies like this happen and like you know as you'll see with all of the you know like the recent hurricanes that are just pummeling us lately um it's just all these people lining up to you know just give blood and donate their time and efforts to helping people you know like i don't want to downplay that yeah and those are people from all walks of life you know not and that yeah across no, the that political no spectrum political affiliation with with the level of people going out and caring about this i think everybody cares it's just i i, I don't know it's partly i think it's like just the internet and social media gives so much exposure to so much negativity about everything that it just is like and that negativity just breeds more negativity and that just breeds more negativity and then it spills out into the real world and then it's just you know everybody's just mad at everybody about everything and if you're somebody like stephen king is who believes in god believes in the devil you know he he is a christian um and it shows through in a lot of his work um you know, you have to imagine the devil is behind this. Not like maybe not the devil the way that he's often thought of in like modern times, but like the trickster devil of old times, like Leland Gaunt. Right. Who the person like, who's whispering in everybody's ears, just like suggesting them to do these things. Yeah. The temptation. It's it's all temptation and like envy, you know. And I think because like everybody in in the town of, of Castle Rock walks by the needful things window and sees the thing that they that they think will make their lives complete will make them will bring them to a better life will make them a better person and uh, you know that's the the thing that we envy in in each other when we see other people and it looks like they have their life all figured out <laughs> it looks like they have their uh that everything in in their life is uh is good and in, in, in the right way it should be and we want that for ourselves and 
you know, the lengths at which we are willing to go to try to break, break into that, uh, better life. Um, unfortunately, you know, people are often willing to screw each other over to get this thing that in the end doesn't really exist. I don't know if any of that made sense. Oh, that was very well put. That might be um, a good way to wrap this up. Did you have any last thoughts on Evil Things? Uh, no, I think that about wraps it up. Oh. Evil Things. Overall, I enjoyed the movie. It's it's kind of surprising that... I don't know, I've never really heard of it or knew anything about it. Um, Got it, lost in the Stephen King shuffle. There's... <laughs> yeah, it definitely is lost in the in the Stephen King shuffle, so... Yeah, if you haven't seen Needful Things and you listen to us ramble about it for two hours, um, you know, maybe go out and give it a shot. Uh, I don't know if I would suggest listening to this two-hour podcast and then watching a two-hour movie and then going to watch the three-hour version of the television. And then reading the 700-plus page book. (laughs) That's probably more Needful Things than anybody ever needs. Um, But we'll give it to you anyway. Yeah, and... um after this i'm really looking forward to sort of like kicking back and taking it easy with our next episode to a degree yeah what are we talking about next time we're talking about a 75 minute movie just one movie (laughs) less than an hour and a half (laughs) yeah so we're not talking about like the entire mummy series or three movies from rondo hatton or Yeah. yeah the five hour needful things examination and I'm sure we'll be able to ramble on for way too long about it, regardless. But we're going to be doing William Castle's 1959 House on Haunted Hill, starring Vincent Price. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I am a fan of the uh, the William Castle films, as cheesy as they are, and and everything. I I like it. They're they're just fun. They're great Halloween movies. They're just like everything that is. I don't know. It's, it's that they're spooky movies. Yeah. If that makes any kind of sense. But, well, not actually being like scary or spooky, but they have that like spooky atmosphere, the ghost and skeleton atmosphere. Yeah. Well, I might differ with you on one point that we'll get in the next episode, we'll get into just how scary this movie is. I. Well, it's been a while since I've seen it. So. Okay. Well, I watched it for the first time, probably for the first 50 times as a small child. So there are moments <laughs> that to you. Okay. Yeah, I see. <laughs> I actually, um, so I wish I could find this scrap of paper somewhere where I wrote down what I thought were the 10 greatest films of all time. House on Haunted Hill made that list. Uh, when I was in elementary school. That's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, we will talk about William Castle and House on Haunted Hill and all that stuff next episode. All right, so thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time.